Well, today we go into a new section of Romans. We've been through 1 through 8, and we've been answering a particular question that Paul has hammered on and hammered on and hammered on. And it's the question, should we sin since we can? And, of course, it was a slanderous accusation that was made about his teaching that he's been answering this whole time. And a group of objectors that are actually vying for authority with these Roman believers, the center of the world. And we've been looking at the question of where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. If that's the case, then what should we do? And, of course, these objectors are saying that that's really can't be the case. You really have to follow the law in order to be righteous. And that's the overriding question. How do you become righteous? And, of course, Paul says, well, you can't become righteous by reformation of self through rules. It doesn't work. All the sin, all rules do is make more sin and bring more condemnation. So the only way to get righteousness is through faith, and it's imputed to us. And then his answer was to, well, should we sin since we can and still have grace? His answer is, well, yeah, we can, but it's not in our best interest to do so. Why, having been raised to life and have our old man put to death, why would we go back into death when we have been have a resurrected life in us? Why, having been delivered from slavery, would we go back into slavery? Slavery to sin. And why, having been delivered from the law and all of its condemnation, why would we put ourselves back under it again and receive all that condemnation? And most particularly, why would we go into condemnation from people like this who are blaspheming me, Paul, and uh, really what they're doing is blaspheming God because they don't follow their own rules. So why would we do that? In eight chapters, he hammers away, hammers away, hammers away. And last week, of course, we saw he escalated the whole notion of why not to sin even though we can and grace will abound. And he added something that we, we actually gain glory even though being an uh, heir of God is an unconditional thing he just gives to us. Being a joint heir with Christ is a reward that we, re- we receive for this faithful walk. And who wouldn't want that? And then he goes on to say any kind of suffering that we can incur by living this faith life, which is where righteousness comes, any suffering that we can incur is, is pales in comparison to the glory that we have for us. And so he really, really nails this down in 1 through 8. And now, today, he's going to turn to a different question. And this question is, what about Israel? Has God rejected Israel? So he's going to give us the question in 9 through 11, chapters 9 through 11. He's going to give us the answer. And sandwiched in between, he's going to give us an immense paradox. So today I'm going to talk about this question, this answer, and this paradox. And in subsequent weeks, hopefully we'll take some of the, uh, and dive into some of the passages in 9 through 11 that we won't have time to go into in detail today. So the question, the answer, paradox. Let's look at the question. As usual, he doesn't start with the question. He kind of ramps into the discussion and then gives us the question in the middle of the discussion after he's kind of set the context. But you can see the question very overtly in 11.1. 
chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, has God cast away His people? Now, I'm postulating that this is still an answer to these objectors. In 1 through 8, it's certain it's an answer to the objectors because in, in uh, chapter, what is it, 2 or 3? One of those. He says, it's blasphemeo, it's slander that these people are saying this about my teaching. And then he says, shall we do evil that good may come? And then, of course, he repeats that later in 6 when he says, well, shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? So he re- restates the question later after he set the context. Well, this is these questions are the same kind of format, so I'm inferring that he's answering these to the objectors still. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Has God cast away his people? If you are a Jewish authority and you're arguing in such a way as to set aside Paul, your first argument as Paul lays it out here, is that what Paul's teaching is crazy. Because if the law has no impact, if the law has now been set aside, then yahoo, you can sin all you want to, and that goes direct contradiction to everything the Bible says up to this point. See, that's crazy. And then a a reasonable follow-on argument to that would be, if the law has been set aside... If, the, if we're no longer under the law, then that means Israel's been set aside. And Israel no longer has a purpose. So you've got all this history leading up to this point, and God's dealing with His people, and He just shoves them aside all of a sudden. What sense does that make? And so Paul says, I say then, has God cast away His people? And just like the other objections, he answers it immediately, certainly not. No, he's not set aside his people. You can see another objection in 11.11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? In other words, did, did they just fall for no reason? And of course not. He's going to give us a reason. So let's go back to 9 and let's just start in on this, this whole uh, sequence here. When we're going to be answering the question, what about Israel? Has he set... Israel aside. Have they been mistreated? Why have they been blinded? Well, we're going we're gonna to see this. Now, before I get into uh, the answer, which we're going to see as we unfurl this, I want to talk about paradox for a minute. Because it's embedded in this whole thing. Now, the Bible is completely built on paradox. And we, as Greek thinkers, don't like paradox. The way we're taught to think as Greeks, Romans, is that we always begin with the notion that we can know everything. We always start with the premise, I can know. Now, nobody teaches this. Nobody articulates it. It's just the way we absorb it because it's our culture. I can know. And then a mystery to us is that which we do not yet know. It's a temporary condition until we will know. And it's very popular to hear people say that when we get to heaven, then we'll know everything. Of course, if we knew everything, then what would we be? Equal with God, right? There's really nothing in the scripture that tells us we, we will know everything. It tells us we will know in person, we'll know face to face, but that's different than just knowing by faith. That's not knowing everything. So, we tend to say, okay, I will know, but I don't yet, and a mystery is a temporary condition. And that's not the way the Bible presents things. 
the Bible presents things as you begin with a mystery, and that mystery is the person of God. God is a very paradoxical fellow. I'll give you some examples. Is God inside time with us, knowing what time it is, or outside time? It's both, right? He has to be both. Because the Bible doesn't make any sense if it's not both. Is God striving and working, or is God resting? Well, we hear both, right? He rested on the seventh day. He's resting until now. My Father's working. He's always working. Jesus answered on the Sabbath day. My Father's always working. Is, is God uh, man or spirit? Is God human or is God some transcendent uh, being? Was well, both, right? In the form of Jesus Christ, He became both. And you can go on and on and on. Uh, the one we're going to see today is, is God sovereign? Or does God give us really free will? And this is, this is something that's just totally tied people up in knots for generations. And the answer is, it's both. We don't like that answer. Why do we not like that answer? Because that means we can't understand it. But the Bible does not begin with, in the beginning, I shall know. What does it start with, in the beginning? God. In the beginning, God. And God is paradoxical. Look at nature. Just look at nature. Nature reflects God, does it not? The Bible tells us that that's what God did. He made nature reflect himself. Nature is unbelievably paradoxical. Science is finally getting to the point where it's admitting this. Uh, Look at the nature of light. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So light is is something that is a reflection of God. Well... In physics, scientists say they don't know what light is. They use wave equations to describe light, and yet when they do experiments, it behaves as a particle. And it can't be both. But it is. Very paradoxical. Just like God. When we do power equations, uh, or sorry, power calculations... We have to use the square root of negative 1 in order to understand power and predict power. Negative 1 doesn't have a square root. When you multiply a negative number times itself, it's a positive number. So mathematicians call it an imaginary number. We have to pretend it exists even though it doesn't. Is that not paradoxical? And if you don't just accept that, you can't describe power. Uh, you can go on and on with this. We now, now scientists are saying that something like 95% of all that is, we cannot know or experience. It's a theory called antimatter. Well, how can you have antimatter? You've got matter and antimatter, and when they collide, the black hole happens or some such thing. Does that even make any sense to anybody? It doesn't make any sense to me. And it doesn't really, they can't explain it either. They just say, it just is. Two totally opposite things that seem to exist. One which we're aware of and one which we just have to believe somehow in order to make sense of things. We could go on and on and on. It's just like this. The world is paradoxical. Explain why atoms don't collapse on themselves. There's some force in there that's balancing things out somehow. Why does the world not spin off into space? They just go on and on. The world is incredibly paradoxical. And And if none of that is persuasive... 
just spend some time looking at your spouse. They just approach life a different way than you do, don't they? So paradox is the way things appear. And because we don't like it doesn't mean it's not true. We as Greeks like to think we can understand everything comprehensively. And we can't because we're finite. We're, we're, we're inside of, of this, of this uh, universe of, of paradox. But what we can do is understand to a significant degree. And the way we understand is by accepting something and then reasoning based on that acceptance. If what we accept is true, we get really tangible, concrete, truthful application. And if what we accept is not true, we get silliness. And you can see plenty of evidence of this around. So what God's going to do with us today is give us some insight into himself that can be unsettling. But you have to take it in the context of everything we've said up to this point. And up to this point, it's been very clear. God has imputed righteousness in us. He's given us new life. We have a resurrected life in ourselves. And it is our choice whether we walk in that life or not. It's our choice. We can walk in newness of life or we can go back into death again. It's our choice. So choice is completely embedded in this whole letter. But now look what we're going to see. Verse chapter 9, verse 1. I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, Israel, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. So we have Israel here who's a curse from Christ. That is a condition that Israel's in at this point in time. And Paul says, I don't like it. It's just reality. Israel, as you can see from this list of descriptions, is supposed to be the example on earth that God uses to show people what living is supposed to be like. How you ought to live. It's supposed to be the holy nation, the example that everybody can see. And God put Israel in like the cross-section of the world. All the trade routes went through Israel so that people could see, this is how I want you to live. And they could see and know, and all the world could be blessed. That's the notion. That's how you could kind of summarize that that list there. But it isn't happening. In verse 6, but it's not that the Word of God has taken no effect, because the Word of God never returns void. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called, a quote from the Old Testament, that is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of he who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, 
and Esau I have hated. What then? What shall we say then? Is, it, is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly with not, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared on the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills he hardens. God does stuff because He does stuff. And even though we have a free choice, God's in control. And nothing happens apart from God. How can that be? I don't know. I don't know square root of negative one. I don't know light. I mean, I see light. I appreciate light. I believe light's real. I can't tell you how it works. I don't know how this works. I think the point here is God is God. One of my favorite uh, movie clips of all time is in the movie Rudy. And there's a priest, and Rudy's asking these questions to him. Why, why, why? And the priest says, Son, I've been doing theological work for decades now, and there's two things I really know. I mean, I tell you, I know these two things. One is, there is a God. And the second is, it's not me. You know, that's pretty profound. If we could get just that down, we would be way ahead. Because what we tend to do is say, if God can't explain this to me, then I'll reject it. If God can't justify himself to me, then he's not big enough God. And Paul's here is like, let's get this straight. God is God, and we are not. Verse 19, you'll say to me, well then, why does he still find fault who's resisted his will? So he made clear earlier in the book, God will judge. God will judge. We are accountable for our actions. Well, if, we, if God is also in charge of what happens, how can we be accountable for our actions? If both is true, if God is completely sovereign and we have free will, if both are true, how can he, cause, how can he judge us? And here's his answer, verse 20. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? See, God is God. Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? This word honor is also used for a price or a value. So the notion here is you make something that's really valuable like fine china, and something that's not so valuable like an everyday cup. And the potter made them both. Can the everyday cup say, hey, wait a minute. Why aren't you making me a fine porcelain plate? That's what I want to be. I don't want to be just an everyday cup. And the answer is, because I'm the potter and I wanted an everyday cup. That's who God is. He's the creator. He makes stuff because he wants to. And then verse 22, he has a postulation. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath, he's still using this potter thing, prepared for destruction that, and, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us... 
whom he called not only of the Jews, but also of the Gentiles. What if he did that? Now, these words prepared here are interesting because the first prepared, for 22, the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction is actually a different word from the other prepared. It's kind of unfortunate the translators chose to use the same English word for two completely different Greek words. The first prepared is katarizo, and it really means retrofitted or repaired or fitted somehow. It's one thing, you fit it for something else. And this second one, that's actually one word that's translated with two words, prepared beforehand, is proetoimazo. Or something like that. Kind of sounds Japanese, doesn't it? Uh, and, and it means that I made this for this purpose. So one is retrofitted, one is made for this purpose. So the notion you get here is that God intended all of humanity, as we know, to be the rulers on the earth, to rule the earth with, in perfect harmony with one another and with God, and to... Uh, bring complete harmony to the earth. We saw in chapter 8, didn't we? The whole creation is groaning for that time of restoration to come when that is restored. And it doesn't like, creation doesn't like all this violence and division and, and disharmony. And, and God is going to reinstitute that. And his notion was for all of humanity to, to be in that position. But what's happened is much of humanity has been retrofitted and now is going to be fitted for destruction. And he's enduring this with long-suffering. And it's not just the Jews, but the Gentiles, because he made this nation to bless all the earth, but now what's happening is he's just blessing it directly spiritually, which is a great paradox, isn't it? How can you have a physical Israel and a spiritual Israel, and they're different people? Well, it's kind of the same thing that Jesus said, "'My kingdom is not of this world.'" And yet, it's going to be of this this world. And he wants us to bring his spiritual kingdom into the physical reality in our sphere. Which again is a very paradoxical thing. But he says in verse 25, as it also says in Hosea, I'll call them my people who are not my people, and her beloved who is not beloved, and it shall come to pass in the place where it's said to them, you're not my people, that they'll be called the sons of the living God. So this notion of bringing the Gentiles in is a big part of God's plan. Now, let's look at, let's flip back over to 11 and look at this answer to, has God cast away his people? Eleven uh, one. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. I'm an Israelite, Paul says, of the seed of Ham, Abraham, tribe of Benjamin. God's not cast away his people whom he foreknew. One of the real tragedies in Christian history is that in theology, the two big points in Romans has been discarded systematically often throughout history. The law has been brought in in various forms and grace has been ejected. Uh, As we talked about last week, the way you get control over people is through condemnation. You condemn them and then you judge them so that they will behave according to the way you dictate. And human institutions do this across the board. And sadly, many Christian institutions have done this. And for many centuries, 
people had the Word of God withheld from them. You, you could not, you were not allowed to own a Bible. You know, the, the, the Reformation happened largely because uh, people like William Tyndall said, I want to put the Bible in people's hands so they can read it for themselves. Lost his life over that. Because people didn't want the Bible in people's hands. I say that the rulers, the authorities didn't want. Because then there's an authority higher than them. And what they want to be able to do is to condemn and control. And that is chapters 1 through 8. That's what Paul's fighting against. No, no, no. Absolutely not. That is not the way God wants to do things. And sadly, in 9 through 11... Also in Christian history, much of Christian history has rejected Israel and says that Israel has been cast away and replaced by the church. And you really cannot read Romans 9 through 11 in its context and come up with that. Uh, One of the sadder things I think I've ever seen was going through the Holocaust Museum in Israel. And you walk in... And early in the, there's, they've got this walk you, you go through and just kind of see the tragedy unfold and all the human misery. And they've got pictures and stuff. I mean, it, they make it very graphic. You can see it come alive. And early in the walk, they have some prominent Christian theologians saying things like, you shouldn't kill the Jews, you should just expel them. And other very anti-Semitic things. And that's because of this notion that since the Israel was a curse, the generation was cursed that rejected Jesus, that therefore God rejected them, and so we can reject them too, and we ought to persecute the Jews. And that set up a lot of the Holocaust. There was a theological justification for the Holocaust. Very, very sad. That is exactly the opposite of what Paul's saying here. Certainly not. I'm an Israelite too. Verse 2, God has not cast away His people whom He foreknew. He has not. Or do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There's a remnant, and there's always a remnant. So verse 11, how say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Did God cause Israel to, to stumble and there's really no reason for it? Certainly not. You know, he always answers all of these objections with certainly not. Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now that's a crazy thing, isn't it? So he's saying that Because Israel rejected, we as Gentiles got salvation. Now, how could that be? Well, if Jesus had been received by the Jews, he would have brought in the millennial kingdom. And this time of the Gentiles would not have happened. We'll see more about time of the Gentiles here momentarily. Verse 12, now if their fall, if Israel's fall is riches to the world because we got the salvation because we had this time of Gentiles that has allowed us to come into this spiritual Israel. Now if their fall is riches to the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? 
So now, when Israel's restored, it's going to be even bigger and better than it would have been. For I speak to you Gentiles, because the Romans here, they're mainly Gentiles. Gentile believers whose faith is spoken of throughout the whole world, remember? For I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Verse 14, If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh, fellow Jews, and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So, exactly opposite of rejecting Israel and rejecting the Jews, it ought to be our goal to do everything we can to bless them and to bring them back into their own fold. We've been grafted, and we'll see in a minute here, we're wild olive trees grafted into their tree. And if they graft themselves back, if they're grafted back into their own natural tree, it's even greater for all of us. Verse 16, For if the first fruit is holy, the lump's also holy. And if the root is holy, so are, some of the branches, so are the branches. Verse 17, And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, you being Gentiles, so we Gentiles were a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker in the root and fatness of the olive tree. The olive tree is a symbol for Israel. Okay, So if you put an olive tree onto the... On, if, sorry, if you put a wild olive tree and graft it onto the uh, native olive tree, it actually brings vitality to the olive tree, apparently, according to what I've been told. Some people say the olive tree will start to fruit. Others say it doesn't fruit. But in any event, everybody says it makes the tree healthier. So we were grafted in as wild olive trees. In verse 18, he says, Do not boast against the branches, the native branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. We are grafted into Israel. We are grafted into Judaism. Christianity is not a separate thing from Judaism. It's a continuation of Judaism and a continuation of the unfolding of God's promises. The promise we have of righteousness through faith is exactly the same promise Abraham has had. Remember, we're, we're all children of Abraham because we are children of the promise. So the idea of rejecting Israel and rejecting Judaism per se is really crazy. Now, Paul is rejecting the Jews who are teaching a false doctrine. He's rejecting their doctrine... He's not rejecting them. Verse 19, But you say then, Branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. So they were broken off, I was grafted in. What's the natural thing to think about that? I'm better than they are. So I'm better than they are. They were cast aside, so I can cast them aside too. If God cast them aside, then so can I. Natural thing to think. Well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. But do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. Okay? Can we sin and grace will abound? Yes. If we do, are there consequences? Yes. If we go back into the death from which we were delivered, what are we going to get? Wages of sin or death. If we go back into slavery from which we were delivered, what are we going to get? 
We're going to get slavery and addiction. If we go back under the law, what are we going to get? Condemnation. That's the consequences of sin. And if you don't stand by faith, you're going to get the same thing. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell. Severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in His goodness. So see, some things are unconditional. Our birth is unconditional. We just receive it. And God gives it to us. The gifts God gives us. He just gives them to us. Uh, having God as, a, as an heir, or I'm sorry, being an heir of God, having God as our inheritance is unconditional. But there's a lot of things that are conditional. Now, it's conditional whether we actually have the benefits of this life based on whether we walk in it or not. It's conditional whether we're joint heirs with Christ. If we want to be joint heirs with Christ, we have to suffer the sufferings of Christ. And if we want the blessings of our faith, then we have to walk in belief. Theme verse of Romans. The just shall live by faith. Better translation, the righteous shall live by faith. That's how you get righteousness, is walking in faith. Verse 25. Do not, I do not desire, brethren, you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. See, there's been this interlude that's been placed in, in, in history where God is no longer dealing predominantly with Israel. He's now dealing predominantly with the Gentiles. We see this in Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. In Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy, uh, the angel tells Daniel, there's been 70 weeks decreed for your people. And Messiah is going to be cut off after 69 weeks. And in the 70th week, all this tribulation is going to take place and then the restoration. Well, we're between the 69th week when Messiah was cut off and the 70th week when the tribulation is going to take place and then the millennial kingdom will be installed. And that's the time of the Gentiles. And the scripture doesn't tell us how long that is. It just is. And this blindness has happened until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There are people who say we need to really evangelize Israel because when we do, or in the Jewish population, because when they see, then the time of the Gentiles will be over and we can have uh, restoration. Well, I don't. I, I think any time we say we can cause God's plan to happen by our actions, yeah, we're kind of a little off. But any time we look and say, well, do we want to do that? Of course we do. We want to. We want to do evangelize all peoples. But God's going to be in charge of the timing. Verse 32, God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy upon all. Now look at 29. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God called Israel. God made promises to Israel. He gave gifts to Israel. He's not going to take those back. Aren't you glad? If God could throw Israel aside and replace him with us, then couldn't he throw any one of us aside and replace him with somebody else? God has given us gifts. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Aren't you glad? We can have 
tremendous confidence that we are in Christ and nothing can separate us from His love. It's, it's a wonderful security. On the other hand, life has consequences. And we can miss out. We can miss out on the life. We can miss out on the glory. We can miss out on the peace that God's given us by frittering it away like the prodigal son did. It's a really big deal. So, we have a new question. What about Israel? Has God cast Israel aside? No, not at all. But Israel is blinded. Israel is in an accursed position. But look what what he says here. Look what he says here. Verse 26. This mystery is going to happen. Blindness has happened. Come in and the fullness of Gentiles has come in. Verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved. All Israel will be saved. That is a reality. Go back to Daniel's 70th week. If you look at Daniel's 70th week and you look at Revelation, which is expanding on Daniel's 70th week, you come to the point where Israel looks and they mourn him who is pierced. They pierced. And there is a restoration. All Israel will be saved. All Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So their enemies for the... Your, sorry, concerning the gospel, their enemies for your sake. But concerning the election... They're beloved for the sake of the fathers because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. The main teaching in the scripture about the 70th week is always be ready. Always be ready for Christ's return. The book of Thessalonians was written because people were concerned. The first Thessalonians was written because people are concerned. They said, God, we've had, we've had some of our people die before Jesus came back. So does that mean they're not going to get to be with us in, in, uh, in the new earth? Does that mean they're going to miss the kingdom because they died? And Paul says, no, no, no. Actually, the dead in Christ will rise first. They're all good. And then the second Thessalonians written is because they said, we think we missed the rapture. We missed, the, we, we missed it. We missed the kingdom. It's, it's already happened. And he's like, no, the resurrection doesn't happen. The man of sin has to come and he kind of goes through Daniel and stuff. Don't, if anybody's telling you that, don't. Don't focus on it. That's in the first century. There's such a, such a belief in the imminence of the return of Christ from the teaching of Scripture that they're really worried that they missed it. And when, when he says they missed it, they thought, they thought I, Paul, hey, did we, did we screw up here? 2,000 years later, we're still waiting any minute. So, um, so we have a new question. We have an answer. And it's a very paradoxical situation, isn't it? But here's the cool thing. If we will accept God as God and accept paradox for what it is, it is a manifestation of God as a being, we can actually have understanding. I'll close with this. And this is uh, this may be a little sloggy. Every philosophy is founded on a paradox. Every philosophy that's not founded on God, the paradox will be a contradiction. And if you'll think about this some, I, th- I think it'll come to, I think it'll come to re- uh, clarity for you. 
Take, for example, the philosophy of relativism. Relativism rests on this statement. There are no absolutes. Is that always true? Yeah, if it's always true, then there is an absolute, right? If it's not always true, then we don't have to pay any attention to it. See how it's a contradiction? It's a contradiction because it's postulated within the realm of Greek thinking of we can understand, we can know. It's bounded by logic. And any paradox in a system that's bounded by logic will also be a contradiction. Take dialectical materialism, which is Marxism. And it's this idea that matter has come to know itself through us. All there is is matter. There's no spirit, there's no God, there's matter. It's the foundation of atheism. Okay. Well, they say that matter has spontaneously come to order. And that's based on scientific observation. And yet, scientific observation says nothing ever happens that way. The second law of thermodynamics says energy never escalates. It always deteriorates. And for something to order itself, it has to escalate the energy. So, it's totally contradictory. It says, based on all known human experience... We believe something that goes against all known human experience. It's a total contradiction. But Christianity starts with a paradox, and it's not a contradiction. Why? Sovereignty and free will both exist. Well, if we were saying that within the realm of logic, it would be a contradiction. But we're saying, start with the person of God. And because God is a person... He's not bounded by logic. He's outside of that. And because we start with a person, ours is not a contradiction. So, therefore, basing everything on paradox actually is very reasonable and consistent with all of our experience. We just have to admit we're not God. And we don't have comprehensive, expansive understanding. We can't look at something infinitely. We can only look at things finitely. And in that is the humility to start with faith. And we can start with God knows best. You would probably like to have different circumstances. And you probably think, have thought at least sometime in your life that God has messed up. But God doesn't mess up. And what we can do is say, no matter what terrible things happening such as people being blinded, such as wrath uh, being on the earth. No matter what's happening, God is God. And what we can do is respond to what He tells us and know based on what He tells us. And when we do that, we can pursue the path of life and freedom and peace and envelop in the love of God even when it doesn't feel like that's what's happening. It's true. And it's true because God is God. All right, thank you, God, for visiting us with this amazing example of how you've dealt with your nation. And we know you deal with us similarly. So I pray, Lord, that you'll take us with our gifts and you'll take us that you will never revoke. You will take us with the life that you've given us, the uh, 
the ability to live that life and you'll give us the wisdom and the faith to live it in a way that other people cannot explain and that surpasses all understanding because we're tapped into your root that you created. In Jesus' name, amen.